Second Samuel chapter 23 tonight. The author of Samuel is wrapping up the story of how God established his earthly kingdom through Saul and his eternal kingdom through David. And so we come to the end of the book. And in many ways, the climax of what the author of Samuel is trying to get us to see. The final four chapters summarize, I think, the point of the book with a climactic epilogue. And so I, I mentioned before, but I just want to remind you about these last six sections. The first and the last section talk about how Saul sinned by killing the Gibeonites and how that sin was atoned for. And then in chapter 24, David's going to sin by taking a census, and that sin's also going to be atoned for. This, these two sections remind us that throughout the book, the books of Samuel, these men are sinful men. They're not perfect. They live in a sin-cursed world, world, and there are real consequences for their sins. The second and the fifth sections... Uh, are sections about David's weakness and how he had to depend on his mighty men. And we'll see one of those sections tonight, the fifth one. These two sections show show us that we must trust in God, but at the same time we are not independent of other humans. We, We need each other. We need to rely on others for strength in times of weakness, just as David did. And then the the center of really this closing epilogue is these middle two sections and these two sections, the third and the fourth sections, we looked at one last week in chapter 22, first part of chapter 23 we'll look at tonight, David's song and David's prayer. And there David remembers God's grace and he remembers God's covenant promise and expresses hope in God's future king. Last time we finished by looking at the Psalm of David that I think best summarized his life, a psalm of trouble and a psalm of reliance upon God so that when David called for help, there was God ready to answer with great strength and power. Now in chapter 23, we see some of David's last words. They show us what is required for a stable organization. How is it that they can have a stable community of of people who, who are... God's people? How can they have a stable group of people? And there are two things on a human level that we'll see tonight. First, a righteous, uh, a stable organization is strengthened by a righteous leader. And second, a stable organization is strengthened by sacrificial servants. So let's read uh, the text here, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 7. This is the word of God. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire, 
will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. So here in chapter 23, we see that an organization is strengthened by a righteous, a righteous leader in verses 1 through 7, and then by sacrificial servants in verses 8 through 39. An organization is strengthened by righteous leaders and sacrificial servants. So first, an organization is strengthened by a righteous leader, verses 1 through 7. The first verse tells us that these are the last words of David. These, I would say, are the last poetic words of David because his last official words are on his deathbed in 1 Kings chapter 2. These are words that, that ought to be important. Just as we remember the final words of our loved ones, especially when they're coherent, when they're conscious, conscious of what they're saying, we want to know what they have to say. When they've looked back on all their lives, life and know that they're about to pass on into eternity, what are some of the things that they want us to be left with? And here David says something of vital importance, and that is that a righteous leader rules in the fear of God. First, a righteous leader acknowledges God's choice of him in verse 1. A righteous leader acknowledges God's choice of him. There are two critical components to a stable and strong organization, a righteous leader and sacrificial servants. But notice that David is not going to paint himself, uh, uh, paint a picture of himself apart from God. Just like in la the last chapter, he said he did all these great things, but he's saying it in the context of what God had done through him. And so David here, in the same way, sees himself in light of God and what God has done for him. Notice how he describes himself in the second part of verse 1. The man who was raised on high. So notice that's passive. That David's saying that, that I was raised on high to be king, but, but really it was done by someone outside of me. Speaking of God, right? And then the next line, the anointed of God. God's the one who anointed me. The sweet psalmist of Israel. So he sees himself not as attaining power by his own effort, but as, as someone who had accomplished great things but because of God, God was the one who raised him on high. God had chosen him to be the king of Israel. Second, the righteous leader speaks on behalf of God. He acknowledges God's choice of him. He doesn't see himself as a self-made man. But, but second, that he speaks on behalf of God. Notice how many different ways in verses 2 and 3 he says that this word comes from God. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. Verse 2, his word was on my tongue. Verse 3, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. So in multiple different ways, he's saying, this isn't me who's talking ultimately. This is God speaking through me. And the reason for the repetition of these synonymous statements is that what David is about to say is important. Okay? This isn't just something that I'm saying, but this is something that God is saying. And he says three things. He says that good rulers are, are, are blessings to God's people. He says that, that good rulers acknowledge and rely on God and that good rulers produce eternal value. So let's look at that first one here. I get ahead there. A, uh, a righteous leader blesses God's people. So here's the first one in verses 3 and 4. A righteous leader blesses God's people. 
Here David paints the picture of a righteous leader and then contrasts that kind of leader with a godless leader in verses 6 and 7. So here in these first couple verses, David wants his people to see that when they have a just, a righteous ruler, then they have something special. What is, what is a righteous ruler like? Verse 3, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. Ever been, have you ever been struck with a, a deep trouble or, or maybe just a, a really annoying frustration late at night and you just thought, I, I don't want to deal with this. And so you go to bed and, and you're not sure how it's going to come uh, to a resolution. But when, when, you, when the light of the morning starts to peek through the windows, it seems to wash away all the anxiety that you had last night. Not that this trouble goes away and then it's gone, but, but you feel like with the new light that's coming in, there's really a fresh start for you. There's a, there's a way that you can now address the situation. That you can handle it with the help of God. And this is what David's saying is, is what a nation is like when it has a righteous ruler. It's like that first light in the morning that provides this great hope. But notice in verse 4, David also uses the imagery of the brightness after the rain. He says, A morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. For many people, rain is depressing but because it's dark and, and often cold. But, but even if that is the case for you, the, the brightness after the rain, the sun after the rain, when it starts to peak out, uh, and, and we start to see the effect that it has, particularly here he's focusing on the, the, the effect it has on the vegetation. And it starts to cause things that once looked a little bit limp, they're starting to grow. You know, like your flowers at, at your house, they, they look a little bit wilted until the rain comes and then the sun follows and, and they start to perk back up. And, and so David's saying, if you have a righteous ruler then it's going to bring hope like the sunshine in the morning. And it's also going to, to bring life like the brightness after the rain as it produces some kind of, of growth in the vegetation. David wants Israel to see that that is what they have. Right? Look at verse 5. Truly is not my house so with God. So isn't it great to have a righteous ruler who provides hope and life? And don't you have that, Israel? See, they have a leader who rules in righteousness. But David doesn't ultimately want Israel to focus on him and what a great guy he is. Right? The last phrase of the first line in, in verse 5 is, with God. That truly is not my house, so with God. So he's saying, yes, this house is, is a ruling, a righteously ruling house. Yes, this house is a blessing to the people because it, because it is with God. So is, is that not a good thing? A righteous leader blesses God's people. Next, a righteous leader acknowledges and relies on God in verse 5. A righteous leader acknowledges and relies on God. Notice the first word of the second line in verse 5. It's the word for. Truly is not my house so with God for... 
He has made an everlasting covenant with me. So why is David's house a blessing to the people? Why is it that David's ruling in righteousness? And the answer is because of the covenant that God has made. David was a blessed man and a man who dispensed blessing to his people because for he was the recipient of God's everlasting covenant with him, wasn't he? David acknowledged and relied on God. You see, God was not just one who kind of uh, wound David up like some kind of, of kid's toy and let it go. David, God certainly started David down the road towards righteousness, but He also uh, continued to sustain him. David recognized that this, the success of the nation was not dependent on him, but on God. David was simply an instrument that God used to bring blessing. For he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? So, so remember back to the, 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 the two pictures that David have, had the light of the morning and the sunshine after the rain that causes the vegetation, saying a righteous ruler is like that. But, it, but, but here he's clarifying to say that it's not me that actually causes the growth. I'm simply an instrument in the hand of God because will God not cause it to grow at the end of verse 5? So David wants the nation to recognize what a great value it is to have a righteous leader. And in order to drive this point home in verses 6 six and 7, he shows a contrast here that a righteous leader has eternal value in contrast to the unrighteous leader who has no value. He's more like thorns. What good are thorns? Right? They need to be thrown away. Because if they're left alone, then they will choke out the life of healthy plants. But if you have to throw them away, if you don't leave them alone, then they cause pain to the person who removes them. So they're destructive if they're left alone. And they're destructive if they're thrown away. It's a lose-lose situation with thorns. Look at verse 6. But the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns. Why would they be thrust away? Well, because they have no value. They're actually causing destruction. But as they're thrust away, they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron in the shaft of a spear. And they will be completely burned with fire in the spear in, the, uh, in, in their place. So... The thorns, that, which are referring to the unrighteous rulers, are useless. They're thrown into the fire. They cause damage. They choke out life. They cannot be left alone. But when they're removed, they cause pain to the one who removes them. Ultimately, they have no eternal value. And the point of this is not to, to um, discourage the people of Israel, but actually to show that you don't have this. See? You don't have a destructive, worthless ruler. You have a righteous leader who has eternal value, who rules in the fear of the Lord, who speaks on behalf of God, who blesses His people, who acknowledges and relies on God, and who has eternal value. And your leader, his works will not be burned up, but they will last. Isn't that the kind of leader that we desire in every area of our lives? See, David recognized that the stability and the strength of a nation was not only 
was not solely dependent on him. But but it was also dependent on sacrificial leaders, sac- sacrificial servants, excuse me, and that's our next point. David was a leader who was righteous, who relied on God and saw that God ultimately brought the growth. But he but he was not so naive as to think that he could do this all alone. And that's what we have this section here. We've already seen uh, stories about the mighty men and some of their feats. Here we have a list of some more mighty men. Set these sacrificial servants who, who sacrifice themselves, who give of themselves for the sake of the nation, particularly for the sake of David. So an organization is strengthened by sacrificial servants. In verses 8 through 12, we see the three mighty men. These are the best of the best. These are uh, the most skilled and the most valiant of all warriors. At least they're the most accomplished of all warriors. They are Joseph, Bashabeth, Eleazar, and Shammah. In verse 8, we read about Joseph, Joseph, Bashabeth. Here, the author wants to show the value of the servants of David who are willing to sacrifice their lives for David's well being and for the nation of Israel. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph, Bashabeth, Atakamanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of 800 slain by him at one time. Kind of reminds me of Lord of the Rings when Gimli and Legolas are counting their kills. There's Joseph, Bashabeth, killing his 800 men. And then in verses 9 and 10, Eleazar fought the Philistines in one particular battle for so long that his hand was temporarily frozen to the to the handle of the sword, maybe even a, a temporary kind of paralysis that happened because he was so engaged in the battle. Verse 9, And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. So everybody else has retreated, and Eleazar remains. Verse 10, he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain. So so the the nation of Israel, as they're fighting, they see that the battle, they're losing the battle. So they retreat except for Eleazar. He continues the battle and wins with the help of the Lord. And then what happens? Everybody else comes along to to take the spoils uh, as if they were involved in the battle the whole time. Verse 11, the third mighty man is Shammah. Verse 11, now after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, a Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. The Philistines were Israel's close neighbors, and so one of the things that they liked to do to the weakling Israelite farmers was to steal their crops. So let the farmers do all the work, planting, the the watering, the the the, um, the hoeing, and, and all that stuff that's necessary. All the other farmer terms that I don't know. Um, they do all the work, and when it's time for harvest, we'll collect on it. And uh, so that's what they did. But Shema protected a lentil field in Israel from from having the crops stolen. And because of that, he was honored. These men accomplished great things, but but notice in verses 10 and 12 that they can't do it apart from God. So with Eleazar, this one man um, 
fighter against the Philistines says in the middle of verse 10, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And then with, with Shammah in the lentil field at the end of verse 12, and the Lord brought about a great victory. So these are men who, who accomplished great things on behalf of Israel, but did it through the help of God. So the three mighty men, and then verses 13 through 17, three other mighty men. On another occasion, David was in the cave of Adullam, probably in verse 13, referring to the time when he's running from Saul. And at this time, he was thirsty. And so just in a passing comment, he expressed his desire to have some water from the well in Bethlehem. And so three of his mighty men heard his desire, and at the risk of their lives, they traveled 12 miles to Jerusalem, broke through a Philistine garrison to get to the well, drew out a pot of water, brought it back to David, and David's going to, to respond at the end of verse 16. But let me read these verses here. Verse 13. Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troops of the Philistines, the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me the water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, because, or, but instead poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went, who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. David would not drink it. This maybe sounds a little bit rude to these people who risk their lives. What David is saying is that I'm not worthy to have you risk your lives to save me or to get, make me feel any better. The only person that's worthy of you risking your lives is God. And so it wasn't that he just kind of just poured it out in the ground and said, you know, that was a big waste of time for you. No, he, he poured it out in a drink offering to the Lord. And David was saying, God, you alone are worthy. You're not my... He's saying to these men, you're not my pawns that are just here to accomplish my purposes. This is not my empire. Rather, you men are my fellow partners in the kingdom of God and I value your souls. And so when you risk your lives, I, I can't accept that as a gift. Only God can accept that. I'm not worthy. In verses 18 through 23, we have two leaders, and then we have a list of 37 men at the end of the chapter. The two leaders are listed there for us, Benaiah and Abishai. Verse 18, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the thirty. And he swung his spear against 300 and killed them, and he had, he had a name as well as the three. He was most honored of the 30, therefore he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. So, if there was a person that could get into the three mighty men that we saw in verses 8 through 12, then Abishai was the one. But he didn't quite attain to the three. And the reason for his high status was because he killed 300 men with the spear. He was highly respected among, among all the 30 mighty men, but he did not attain to the highest ranking of honor. Abishai, the brother of Joab. And then Benaiah, you have in verses 20 through 23, who's the commander of the guard. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabziel, 
who had done mighty deeds, killed two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did and had a name as well as the thirty men. He was honored among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David had appointed him over his guard. So Benaiah's great accomplishments were killing two Moabites, killing a lion in a snow, on a snowy day, and then killing an Egyptian with his own weapon. And like Abishai, he was honored among all the fighting men, but he didn't attain to the highest honor of the three mighty men. In verses 24 through 39, we probably have a combination of all these men, the three mighty men, the other three chief men, six, and then Abishai and Benaiah, that's eight, and then and then uh, have this list that's not complete. In, in other spots, it's, it's a little bit different. It's not... But at the end, verse 39, it says 37 in all. So, so some of these guys may have replaced others who had died uh, for whatever reason. There's a list of 37 men that, that David wanted to record for the history of Israel. Two observations about this list. I'm not going to go through the entire thing. Two observations. First, only two of David's capable three nephews are mentioned here. We already saw Abishai in verses 18 and 19. And we see Abishai's brother Asahel. Do you remember him? Asahel was the, the really fast one. He was um, faster than he was as fast as a gazelle, they, they would say of him. And he chased Abner down, and Abner kept turning back and saying, Why are you chasing me? And finally, Abner stopped and um, put his, his uh, spear in the ground and, and forced the butt end of the spear into the chest of Asahel, and Asahel died. So you have those two brothers, but who's missing? Abishai, Asahel, and Joab. Joab is not mentioned. Now, he is mentioned, but only as a brother of, uh, um, of Asahel. Right? In verse 18, Abish- Abishai, the brother of Joab. Or verse 37, uh, Naharai, the Berathite, armor bearers of Joab, the son of Zariah. But, but Joab's not actually listed among the men who are the 37. It's not clear exactly why the author of Samuel leaves him out, but very well it's because that David still held this... Um, he, he still had a problem with Joab. Joab certainly contributed to much of the protection and success of David and often did things better than David would have done. But apparently he was left off the list because of his murder and lack of repentance over the deaths of Abner, Absalom, and Sheba. The second observation from this list is notice the the very last person that's mentioned in the list in verse 39. One of David's mighty men, one of the men who was fighting for him was the man that David killed, Uriah. And so the reader is left with the thought that David killed this man who was on his side, who was fighting for him in order, to, in order for David to get what he wants. And again, it reminds us of the, the danger of, of getting our eyes off of the prize, getting our eyes off of what is most important. And doing so, we can even hurt the people that, are, that, are, that we love most or even that, that are on our side. 
Three simple applications tonight as we conclude. Number one, thank God for your righteous leader. Have you been able to experience the joy and the blessing of a righteous leader? Maybe it was a father or a mother, a boss, teacher, a pastor, your husband. Has following that leader been refreshing and hope-filled like the light of the morning of the sunshine or like the brightness after the rain that produces life? Have you known that experience to be true? Are you currently under the rule of a righteous leader? One who seeks to acknowledge and rely on God. One who seeks to bless, uh, to, to bless God's people. One who, who seeks to speak on behalf of God. If so, then praise God for that leader. Because no righteous leader rules apart from the kindness of a sovereign God. And, and if you are under the rule of a righteous leader now, then God has ordained you to be under that rule. I've enjoyed the leadership of a number of godly leaders whose leadership very much marks what is being talked about here by David in verses uh, verses 4 and 5, three, 3 through 5. Their leadership over me was, and to me was refreshing and, and hope-giving. The first leaders that come to my mind are my parents who from my earliest memory loved me and loved God most of all. And they were unwilling to spoil me or to accommodate my sin. They constantly pointed me back to the Scriptures and taught me to obey even when it hurt or even when I was the only one. And I can relate with Israel during the time of David that, that living under my parents' rule was, was like, now that I look back on it, it was like the light of the morning and the brightness after the rain. And then prior to coming here, my two previous pastors, Pastor Hawbaker for eight years and then Pastor Doran for 12 years, they were like, they were a righteous ruler to me as well. They didn't live for themselves or to advance their agenda. They didn't live to, to build their personal empire. They ruled in the fear of the Lord. They were a blessing to me. They loved me. They desired my best. They watched over my soul. And they love God with all their hearts. So I'm thankful for the righteous leaders that I have in my life. And they are to me like the sunshine in the morning and the brightness after the rain. Secondly, be a righteous leader. Thank God for your righteous leader and then be a righteous leader. If you know that refreshing and hope-filled nature... That the experience of, of being under the rule of a righteous leader, then be that kind of leader where you are, to your family, to the people under your care, at work, in the church, in whatever position of authority you are in, purpose to rule like David, to rule in truth and in righteousness, to speak on behalf of God, to acknowledge and rely on God, to live for eternal things, not to be like the thorns that are disastrous and dangerous if it's left alone and dangerous if they're thrown away. So that even when you are gone, even when your lifetime is over, the, the effects of your rule continue on. As a parent, a teacher, 
boss, church leader, a husband, whatever your role is as a leader, rule and righteousness. And then thirdly, acknowledge your interdependence on other people that God has placed in your life. Similar um, application to what we had in chapter 21. We saw the um, when we saw the giant slayers there. Acknowledge your interdependence on other people that God has placed in your life. David was a man who trusted God and ruled in righteousness, but the author of Samuel knows, and David knows, and we know that David could not accomplish what he could not accomplish what he had accomplished without the help of these sacrificial servants. People who are working alongside of him to advance his purposes and ultimately God's purposes. So, so that even when we trust in God, we are not exempt from relying on others for strength. God made us that way. God made us not to be in, independent. Not to be automatons, but people who rely on other people. David was a man of weakness, and in some cases he didn't even see his own weakness, and he needed other people to speak truth into his life. David was a man of weakness. He could not win all the wars on his own because relying on God also means that he relies on others, that he needed to depend on the help of others. And we, too, must recognize that even as we do the work of God, we are not independent of the help of others. The stability of an organization is based on the success of a righteous leader and also on the success and the, the, um, the willingness to give by the sacrificial servants. So let's fill up our church and, and our families and our workplace with blessing and joy because we're willing to do what David did, and that is to rely on one another, to acknowledge the kindness of God who put us in a position to affect positive and eternally beneficial change. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, the righteous rulers that you have placed in my life. Thank you for my parents. Thank you for um, my pastors over the years who have spoken truth into my life. Into my life, and um, just uh, dozens of other people who have served as examples and who have led me uh, towards righteousness and truth, led me away from sin, which would destroy me. And while at times it felt uh, constricting and felt as if, as if they didn't know what they were doing or what would be in my best interest, as I look back on those times, Lord, it was refreshing. It was hope-filled. And I'm um, thankful for how you've used these men and women in my, lives, in my life to, to strengthen me and, and provide some semblance of stability. Lord, I pray that I would be the kind of leader that this church deserves. This church has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And they really deserve nothing less than one who is on the same page with Jesus Christ himself. They deserve nothing less than to have... Um, me rule in righteousness and to to have their best interest in mind, to watch over their souls, to pray for them, to, to care for them, to lead them to, to truth and righteousness even when uh, 
it's the not a, not the not very popular the unpopular thing. Lord, give me the strength to rule in that way. Lord, help me to rely on other people, and I pray that each of us would do the same. Help each person to see the responsibilities that they have to rule over others and to to have. Uh, influence over others in various parts of their lives, whether it be at work or home or, or uh, here in the church or in the, in the government, whatever the case, Lord, may we rule in righteousness and be a refreshing and a hope-filled um, and satisfying uh, solution and means to the people who are under our care. And may we ultimately rely on you and acknowledge that you are the one who gives strength and stability that, that we could not have any of the, the good things that we have without this covenant that you've made with us, that you will be our God and, and that we will be your people. And we long for the day when, when we will be under the perfect rule of Jesus, our Savior, when the King of Kings will come back to this earth that he owns and he will restore it to what it once was and what it was designed to be. And he will rule with a rod of iron will rule in perfect righteousness and we will enjoy the blessings of it because there is nothing better for us to have than a, than a king who rules uh, in, in righteousness. And we pray that that time would come quickly. Send our Savior, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.